morning and welcome back to the Color Gap podcast. I don't think you're ready for this conversation. It is so rich and chock full of absolute gems of wisdom from someone I've deeply admired from afar for some time. We're going to go in deep on how authenticity is the key to leveling up in your career. And my guest today is someone who shows up as herself in each and every interaction and someone who has an incredible career to demonstrate how this approach can and will work for you. Celinda Farius Appleby, pronouns she, her, Ella, is also known as Sally. She's the Director of Global Talent Attraction at Visa and passionate about employer branding. Diversity and inclusivity are major principles that guide her work in designing human-centered talent attraction strategies. At the start of her career, Sally recruited in an agency setting, quickly falling in love with matchmaking and helping others make successful career moves. In 2010, she joined Hewlett Packard and began to launch global digital media strategies within talent acquisition. Sally then advanced to Oracle as the head of recruitment branding. She successfully built and led Oracle's global recruitment marketing arm. Nike then recruited Sally to join a newly created talent brand team focused on crafting innovative global digital and social media strategies. Buckle up for just over an hour of engaging, dynamic, and thought-provoking conversation with Sally, and I highly recommend that you prepare to take notes. I hope you enjoy. So Sally, I am so excited to have this conversation with you. You are someone whose career that I have admired from afar for a really long time. I think I discovered you first on Twitter a number of years ago. And um, in 2019, when Minda Hartz uh, released her book, The Memo, you did this incredible gift to your network around um, offering up the book to a couple of folks in your your Twitter network. And I was actually one of the lucky recipients of that gift. And I'm super grateful for that. The experiences of Black women and women of color are obviously really different than someone like myself as a racialized woman in Canada versus the experiences in the U.S., but the book was such an important sort of milestone in my journey uh, navigating through even moving this podcast forward because it finally kind of gave validation that our experiences as racialized people are a little bit different and how we show up in the world and the access that we have to opportunities is not the same as those um, that are in the majority. And so it was a real gift and I'm forever grateful for that and to have the opportunity to dig in deep with you on authenticity and how do you use that to really level up your career it's such an exciting opportunity because I think the audience will really connect with your story and your expertise, um, as well as the opportunity for us to understand how you've done it. I know people resist a lot around bringing their authentic selves to work because there's a lot of fear of retribution of some sort and backlash or people not taking you seriously in the right way. And so the things that I've seen of you, you just show up as your authentic self and all of the different platforms that you have and even in just an hour engagement. And I'm just super thrilled to have the opportunity to dig in deep with you today. So welcome. 
Thank you so much for having me. I also have been a fangirl of you. And of course, I remember you winning the book because you were like, can you send it? I I don't even know if you got a Kindle or a real book in Canada. I got a real book. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because it wasn't (laughs) at first. um, But that was, you know, you reminded me of a great moment where I met Minda also on Twitter and just fell in love with, you know, her mission and her cause. And thanks to some silent angel investors, I was able to take my five book investment and convert it into 30 books for my network, Mm -hmm. which was fantastic. You know, um, I think oftentimes providing access, right, to those opportunities are very limited for, you know, people of color, women of color, right? And so I wanted to be able to gift that um, so people could grow as much as I was growing, because I also was devoured the book the minute it came out and followed Minda around and went to like three of her events. She was, (laughs) so I was definitely very invested in, in, in that work for sure. I love it. Paying it forward is so, so important. And that's just a great place um, to start the conversation as well. And um, really even looking at some of the background of how you got to the place um, that you've gotten to in your career, I think would be a really great opportunity to also get to know more about your background and your pathway to your line of work. Uh, You work as a global talent attraction leader. And I'd love to know anything you would like the audience to kind of know about some of that context with your background career-wise and any insight you might have into you as a whole person as well. Sure. So I um, recently came to the um, is it conclusion probably that I am a first generation white collar employee because my family isn't in corporate America. Um, I did a podcast not too long ago where someone introduced me to that term and I was like, is that a thing? It's a total thing. So many people talk about it. So um, I will say my parents immigrated from Chile here. um, And I was raised in Maryland with my siblings. I come from a fairly large Chilean family, uh, Chilean American. um, And I basically, you know, Grew up in Maryland, grew up in the D.C. area. My first job was in recruiting. I was a receptionist, horrible receptionist. Um, You know, I still haven't improved my administrative skills, I will be honest. But um, they it was at a staffing company, so I'm going to date myself, but Monster.com was big. To be fair, I was a bartender forever, and my dad was like, get it together. You went to college. Like, I get it you're making money, but get a real job. And so I we bargained, and I got a switchboard operator receptionist job, and I literally hung up on everyone like but I had a great memory and so when they had me in the bullpen they would be like we need to fill this wreck and I would be like oh my god do you remember the guy with the hat couldn't remember names couldn't remember skill set but I was really good at the matching and I fell in love so instead of firing me which they totally should have (laughs) they made me a recruiter and I, I remember them saying like it's okay if you fail. Like they were very low expectations. I ended up shining and making like $30,000 my first month in commission just because of that people match. And I became addicted and I didn't realize, which I have a very addictive personality anyways. Like if I get a thrill from it, it just becomes my life. But, um, and I've stayed in recruiting forever um, in about in 2007, 2008, is I was pregnant with my twins. Um, 
And I decided that I needed a slower pace. I'd been in that head hunting, or I don't think they call that anymore, but staffing for profit. Um, and I, and I got it in my head. I wanted to join corporate America. Let me tell you, it was so hard to crack into corporate America. I applied. I mean, all of the things I hear job seekers say today, no one's looking at my resume. Um, I'll be frank with you. My last name was Farias, you know, so I didn't have the Applebee last name because I was like kicking and screaming to convert over. Um, I got into HP through a referral. One of my really good friends, her brother worked there and I joined HP as an Applebee. I think my, my ex-husband at the time was like, just change your name, right? Like it's time. We've been married for a few years. I will say, I think that helped quite a bit, mm-hmm. um, having a more Americanized last name, right? Cause Celinda is kind of like, what is she? You don't really know, but the Applebee name really got me in the door with that referral. And I started off as a contractor and I will say within six months, I went perm. I hustled my butt off. I didn't even know what sourcing was, but I invented it, re- you know, reinvented it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the way that my career has progressed has purely been through hard work and raising my hand to do more work. So mm-hmm. even though I was severely busy as a sourcer, there was an opportunity to join a couple project teams at HP to work on the employer brand. And my boys were little, they were two. When I look back, like, wow, you did all that. I don't know if I'd tell women to do that today because mm-hmm. we're heavily burdened anyways, But that's what I did. I raised my hand. I took on more work, gained the experience. HP invested in me. They sent me to classes where I learned marketing, learned brand work, and became a true proponent of the work, right? Where they promoted me. I will be frank with you. I don't, I didn't go to school for marketing. So I've always had that sort of, I hate using the word imposter syndrome, but that thing in the back of my head that there's always someone better at this. Right. And I, and for years I've always said, well, that's not my strength. I'm a better, but the reality is I've been in the space for 15 years working for Oracle, HP, Nike, now at Visa. And so at some point I was like, you need to stop dumbing down your experience and own it and live it. And I think that was the turning point for me, right? Just being comfortable and looking at my resume and saying, okay, I did that. And I should be more um, boastful. Women aren't boastful, right? We, we don't yeah. brag, right? If anything, we downplay the things we do. And um, I think that was the changing point for me. It, and especially in my career, because I started pivoting into higher and bigger roles. And with bigger roles come bigger salary, right? Mm-hmm. And as a single mom, now I'm divorced. Um, it was always about the salary for me. I'm mm-hmm. not going to lie. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so much of what you say just resonates so deeply with my own story, being a child of immigrants and also not having those role models in my life in terms of a mom or a dad that were actually in the corporate world and had paved any sort of a pathway for me either. And I also started off in in recruitment. And for me, it was such an unnatural fit because I'm such an introvert that I used to have to like create scripts to try to call people and just totally out of my comfort zone every single day, but I just said yes as well to every opportunity and really look to solve problems, I think was the, was the approach and, um, you know, started to kind of build a little bit of a, a name for myself in the recruitment capacity as well. And I love kind of going back to those recruitment routes too, when I have these conversations, because it allows me to kind of dig into my natural 
desire and ability to really ask great questions. And one of the questions I used to love asking whenever I would hire anyone from my own teams or when I was recruiting um, for any companies I used to work for is really to go deeper and to get insight into things that wouldn't necessarily be accessible otherwise. So I'm super curious to understand, I mean, you've kind of touched on a few things, but looking over your life and your career, were there any sort of really strong character defining moments that really have made you the person that you are today? God, several. Um, I think becoming a mom for one, and I know that's cliche, everybody says that, but a little insider scoop for you and your audience is I didn't want to be a mom. Uh, my mom was a teen parent. My parent, my, both my parents were teenagers when they had me and bless their hearts. I couldn't imagine being 16 with a baby. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was raised in a very different immigrant plus teenager. I mean, it was far more different than what my kids are being raised in. And I think I'd had that stigma. It's like, I don't want to be a mother. And then of course I get pregnant and I have twins. And so, um, in the processing of nine months, cause the boys are delivered at 38 weeks, I started I was scared. I was scared I was going to mess them up. And because of that, I think it in those nine months, I looked internally to figure out what was my, what was the problem? What was the hesitation with motherhood? Is it me? Am I broken? You know, is what was it? And so I did a lot of work there and I will say the kids just changed me. The minute they arrived, you know, they say you, you figure out your mom, you know, your mama bear. And it was very true. Um, And because of them, I've become more patient, more tolerant, more um, open. I also want to break generational traumas that I didn't ever think I needed to before, right? You always say, I'm not going to do what my parents did. But when you have children, I think you really should mean it, you know? Um, The second one was my divorce. Um, I hate failure uh, to this day. And divorce seemed like a failure for me. I don't speak about it often because, you know, we're still in each other's lives. You always will be with the children. But I also, it made me put my big girl panties on because I'd been so reliant on another person, another human to help me. And um, I hate asking for help. And so it was a little floundering moment of what does putting your big girl panties on really mean? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's why I think my career escalated because my career had never been important at all until I found myself going through a divorce. And suddenly I was like, okay, HP, what else can I do? You know, what else I want to grow? I didn't have that innate nature before. And then the last and final defining moment was moving to Portland, Oregon. Um, And this wasn't too long ago, about five years, less than five years ago, Nike relocated me as an adult with eight-year-old twins into a city I know no one, across the country, 2,500 miles away from my family. And wow, that year, that first year was hard, you know, making friends, a new job, trying to get your children happy, you know, because they had some they had some adjustment issues. Um, And in that year of solitude and growth, I really do feel that I came out um, this person that I am now, right? I mean, I think she's always been there, but this Mm -hmm. person of let me help you get through that struggle because I went through it and I had to pay a lot of people to get me through it. There wasn't anyone that was like offering help, right? And Mm -hmm. so if I find that someone is going through a moment in their career that's challenging or, or, or in their lives, I definitely go into aid mode. Um, and I think it's helped me a lot in the past five years. I think in that whole karma of helping others, um, you get a lot of goodwill back. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I love that so much. It's it's really centering other people in the dynamics so you can really use your your life and your experiences for purpose, right? And all of those experiences that you navigated through, they just create this resilience, right? And the ability to take on different challenges that you probably would never have expected yourself to to push through. And I think that's what, what makes the ability to connect so much deeper and that authenticity is so much easier to access because you're not afraid of people not liking you. It's like you've been through so much looking back over your life, right? And I think that's a, a beautiful thing. And I really do think in, in every interaction I've ever had with you, primarily previous for the last number of years, it's really been online. And the thing that's always stuck out to me is that you know your energy and your presence are really, really contagious. And you just ooze that authenticity. And it's really obvious when you're on your Instagram or your Twitter, and it's just like, I feel like I know Sally. And that's kind of the beautiful um, thing in terms of our ability to connect as well. And it's obviously it's working for you in your career and as well as the platforms that you're building and you're working on. And, you know, you've worked, as you mentioned, for some massive brands like obviously Visa, Nike, HP, Oracle, and you have a really strong and loyal following online. And I'm curious to know as well, like what has this approach to showing up as you are? What has that done to really advance any goals and intentions you've had throughout your, your life and your career? I will say it's hard at first, right? As anything that you try out new is. Um, but the key to being authentic or, you know, just showing up as your true self is exactly what you said. Like once you are comfortable with the ugly parts of you and we all have ugly parts, right? Or, and, or maybe they're not ugly, but we think they're ugly. Um, is when you can be truly authentic because you don't care what other people say. Like you've accepted them, right? You've accepted this horrible past or this habit or whatever. And if someone brings it to you, you no longer have to deny it. This is who you are, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that that has been the key, but I will be honest with you from a career perspective, um, it's intimidating to some of my leaders that... um, people know me, right? Or that I live a public life. Um, And it's not super public, right? But you know, a a great example would be the last time I went to a conference in person was at the LinkedIn Talent Connect. And I went to Dallas with my entire leadership team at Visa. And as you're seeing, as we would walk through the the halls of of the convention center, people like, Sally, Celinda, hey. And, you know, as people do, right? Because I make, I'm very open and warm. And everybody with me was like, how do they know you? Like, (laughs) what is happening? And of course, they were shocked, right? Because no one did that to them. And so it's not their lived experience. And two, I think they finally figured out who I was, right? Because for, I think it gave them an insider scoop into my life, right? And I think at that moment, they went to go look for me online and see, and they're like, wow, you really are who like who we see is who you are online, right? Mm. And I thought that was a great compliment because, um, I, I, you know, my kids say I'm a fraud online, so it's good to hear <laughs> from adults that it's not true. Um, anyways, I will say, so being authentic has helped online in general, right? So peeping, uh, meeting people like you, meeting people like Minda, and increasing my network, um, 
and just keeping up with the, hey, I'm here to help and how can I help you um, has always been helpful. From a career standpoint, it can be a little intimidating because the lines are blurred, right? Mm -hmm. In fact, I always joke, you know, people call me Sally except at Visa. (laughs) (laughs) And I just think it's like they don't, you know, they don't feel comfortable with that name, even though I've introduced myself that way, they still see me as Celinda Appleby and whatever image I took on day one at Visa, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, And, and I think changing those stereotypes is hard. Um, But you know, you do it one person at a time, right? When people finally, you know, see what I post on LinkedIn or Twitter, and they're like, wow, like I'm reconciling that you are a much more multidimensional human beyond, you know, your ID photo. And it, it's easy to win hearts on Twitter with your tweets, right? But one on a one on one, especially in this virtual environment, I, I, I have a more personalized approach and I let them come to me, meet me where they are, because, you know, a lot of the people at Visa aren't socially you know, like I don't see them on social media as like Nike where everybody was. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that that also adds to the, to the demystifying of who I am for them. Yeah, for sure. And I think just so many times, a lot of us are taught that you have your work self and your personal self, and they're not supposed to intertwine in any way. And you're supposed to put your, you know, your, your face on and whatever else to show up as your, your corporate self when you're in the in your work zone. And it's it, like for people like yourself and for me too, it's really, really hard to hide that. And I've had people that have asked me in the past, like, do you fear that you won't get opportunities because you are so vocal about, you know, the stuff that I do on the podcast, I have a lot of things that I say that aren't particularly comfortable for people to hear. And that's the work of talking about the experiences of racialized people is that if it's too comfortable, then we're not really talking about things in the way that is that are lived experience in our reality, right? And I always say, like, if someone is not going to appreciate or see the strength in that, then that's probably not a place that I'm going to thrive, right? And you have to get a little more discerning as you kind of progress in your career. But it's hard because I was doing a workshop today for a number of students at this um, scholarship program that I'm connected with. And one of the questions that came through is, how do you sort of show up, but also set boundaries for yourself so that it's not seeping in so much to your personal life. And I don't know about you, I'm the type of person that work and personal blend together because I am purpose driven, right? So it's hard Mm -hmm. to separate the two. But do you have any insight on the whole boundaries conversation? And how do you and and do you sort of pick and choose what you post and how you should show up on different platforms, knowing what audience might be there, and how they might perceive something? That's a good question. Um, so boundaries, um, my family jokes, I have zero. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, when you have to share a a two bedroom apartment in one bathroom with multiple human beings, I think you kind of lose the boundaries. So Mm -hmm. I blame my, my childhood on that, but I grew up in the same, probably the same school of thought you did about eight, nine, 10 years ago. And I'm probably pushing it between eight and 10 years ago, where we were told to have two separate, right? The the yeah. fun account, the private account and the professional account. And I did that. And I was a fraud, right? I was mm-hmm. boring. My professional account was jobs and like <laughs> HR, like no offense, HR, you know, <laughs> 
read this in HR or whatever, right? The things Mm -hmm. they tell you to do. And the reality is I'm a whole person. I want people to identify with me. So when you go to my LinkedIn, my bio is all about me and and how we can find synergy, right? If it, you know, contact, if you like sneakers, we probably are gonna have a fantastic conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if, if you're a runner, you know, and, and I think at the end of the day, especially in recruiting, especially in HR, people just want to connect with you, right? There's so there recruiters are diamond a dozen. There's, there's so many of them. There's so many HR professionals and who are the, who is the candidate going to connect with most? Right. And the same thing as a hiring manager, right? I think, I think giving people the insider to understand how you lead and how you move is, is so helpful because I'm not everyone's cup of tea and I'm okay mm-hmm. with that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's fine. It's, that's taken me a long time to be okay with that. You know, I used to be a people pleaser and wanted everyone to love me, but I've come to the realization that there's no way we don't all like everyone that just does it. It's not a normal thing, right? It's not kindergarten Mm -hmm. anymore. And so I'm, I've come to the realization it's okay if not everyone loves me. And I prefer to give you the information to opt out to this tea, you know, and boundary wise, I'm really awful at that. Um, because I feel that I would share, actually, I would share more of my children, but they have put a boundary on that. And I will tell you the first few months was really difficult for me to understand that, but I also understand that they don't want to be on my social media. And so that's an example of a boundary that I won't cross, right? Unless I ask and get permission. It's like going to the PR firm to get them to agree too. Um, (laughs) But other than that, no, I want you to know that I'm having a horrible time dating and that I'm also interviewing a recruitment marketing analyst. And by the way, we're in a panini and I'm no longer wanting to, I tweeted today, like I'm not going to wipe down my groceries anymore. I'm sorry. (laughs) I drew the line on that. Right. And I think that that makes it more relatable and I know it offends people, but those are the people and the opportunities I don't want. And I think saying no to things comes easier with time in your career. It comes easier when you have a financial backing, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, if we rewind back to that moment, I told you when I was going through a divorce, I didn't have money. I was, we were splitting finance. I was broke. Was it making a great amount of money either? Um, I couldn't say no to things. I had to be a little bit more flexible, right? I had a little, I had to, I had to hustle a little harder. But now, you know, years in corporate America, years of financial advisors helping me, and stocks, and all the things that you get with a corporate job, have put me in a place where I feel like I can say no to things that don't jive with my vibe. Hundred mm-hmm. percent, and I feel like by sort of tapping into that authenticity, you are expanding your network of people that know the whole you that will be willing to go to bat for you, to support you, to help you. Uh, if you need the support, if you need a referral, if you need someone to, you know, help with something that you're looking to do to um, promote something that you've got going on, it just becomes like you've got this community that gets built from that place of authenticity. And I, I, I think I can't say it enough to people how important it is and how much benefit you get, especially if you are purpose-driven, you you desire to help in some capacity, breaking down some of those things with respect to your work and personal and not blending them and actually, or blending them allows people to really 
connect with you and not be so afraid of, you know, someone that happens to work in talent acquisition or recruitment or HR talent branding, one of any of those things at a big brand company, right? It just humanizes everything about that experience. And so I think I, I say more power to you. And I hope that everybody that's listening to this conversation sees the value and the benefit of doing that for themselves as well. Because at the end of the day, I mean, the things that got you this far, it's like your home training and the things that you've navigated through all of that change means that you can probably get through a lot of different things if things don't work out or if someone happens to say no to you, right? There's so much opportunity that's still available. And I also think it's your goal, right? So maybe mm-hmm. five years ago, my goal was to get all these people to love me by, yeah. by witty and funniness that my kids say <laughs> I'm not. But, you know, by being witty and funny and creative, people are going to love me, you know, by sharing my knowledge with the world about how to do talent brand, they're going to love me. And I will say, I pivoted that quickly because it's easy to get people to love you if you're saying what they want you to say, mm-hmm. but it's when you start saying things that they don't want to hear, like, Hey, it's a Latina. Why haven't you had people of color on your podcast? Like, or, or whatever, right? Like if, when you push a little button here and there, that's when it gets tricky. And so for me, my goal is to make sure people talk about me when I'm not in the room, we don't need to be yeah. friends. Yeah. But if you can positively speak about something I have done that either moved you or motivated you, that to me is far more important than get, making friends because I have a great friend base, right? I always love more friends. I'm an Aquarius and just how I roll. <laughs> but to me, the value in your network is having them talk about you when you're not present. And that is a, a far greater strategy that I've seen work. 100%. What does Oprah say that it's a tweetable moment? I feel like that was totally a tweetable <laughs> I love that. And, you know, when I was creeping on some of your profiles to do some research for this conversation, uh, I came across a post that you had on your Instagram feed that just really jumped out at me because it sort of speaks to this whole idea of um, finding our true selves in these environments that aren't always open to that. So it said that let your vibe be a product of your heart, not your environment. And for a lot of people, that's a that's a lifelong journey. And some never really get there because they are, you know, navigating through journeys that may not be necessarily their own. And it's maybe somebody else's desire or idea of what their life needs to look like. And for so many of us, it's really hard to stay true to ourselves in these environments as well that we're a part of that may not always just be open to our authenticity And I'd love to know how you really got to a space in your life and your career where your heart is the thing that really leads you. You know, we touched a little bit on sort of that movement away from having to really think about money first and more around, you know, purpose and impact and all of those things. But was there anything else that has gotten you to that space where your heart is leading? You know, I, so in full transparency, I had a horrible time at Nike. It was just a very difficult culture for me. Um, in retrospect, it had been my dream company for so long, so much so that I'd put it on a pedestal, you know, kind of like that quarterback boyfriend you wanted in, in high school, right? And in that process of putting this environment at such a high pedestal, I let so many things happen to me that I was silent about and to others that I was silent about and it just compiled and it compiled and compiled and you add other life things my kids weren't going through a great time at school and 
all of these things, right? I learned immediately that I was selling myself to be part of the brand, right? Mm. I'm no longer the person I entered the building. The person that entered the building was gone, right? Grant said the person they hired was the pearl-wearing blazer oracle, <laughs> you know, <laughs> HR professional. And suddenly I moved into wearing yoga pants and sneakers every day. So I will say like the culture shock on its own was its thing, but my heart stopped working. Um, and I was just so pressed to make it work. Cause again, I didn't want to fail and I didn't want to tell my family that I made this big move and I hated it here. And so for 16 months that I worked there, my heart was just hurting in like internally. I couldn't be vocal about it because if you go back to that time, all I did was like swoosh life, hashtag swoosh life. Everything was, you know, I was putting on a facade and you know, fast forward to my time at Visa, I realized that corporate America is a tough place for people of color. And I like, I like the word, the term you use. Um, uh, corporate America is a tough place for immigrants, for first gen white collar, right? Um, corporate America is a hard place if you didn't go to a fantastic university. Corporate America is a really hard place if you don't have a career pedigree, no matter which corporate America we enter right? It could be mm-hmm. Nike, it could be Oracle, it could be Wayfair, whatever. I think we, mm-hmm. I think everybody's working through this. We saw this through the social injustice of 2020, right? The, the, the rising. And I decided if I led with my heart and always treated people with the respect that I wanted and championed people, even if they didn't champion me back, that eventually it would come back to me. And that's paid off so well at at Visa in the sense that every review I get, I'm called the team cheerleader. You always care about us. And that's who I am. You know, that's it. That's who I am at my heart, at my core. Like I want to be a helper, but it the Nike environment. That person wasn't able to thrive. Kind of felt like a new kid on the block in a, you know, like I didn't move. I went to the same middle school, the same high school. So I, I don't know about change in that capacity. And I will say it hasn't steered me wrong. It hasn't steered me wrong. People still piss me off. I still have hard days. Um, I'm still like, what the heck, Susan? What's going on? But for the most part, I approach it from the heart versus from it's a personal problem, right? I, I, I take the person out of it and realize that we're all just trying to figure things out. And I and I try to just lead with heart and kindness. And if I can't do that, no response is the best response. Yeah, I love that. And I think it's it's interesting, the events of 2020 um, as a whole, obviously with everything going on with the racial injustice movement in the States, it's touched a lot of what's happening in Canada as well, where not as polite as people kind of think that we might be. And it's also obviously everything happening with COVID. You're just seeing this, I think, a bit of a refocus for people around the simple pleasures in life and how do you get back to a place of living authentically and living with purpose and, and really leading with heart. And I've been having a lot of conversations with leaders in my company lately about kind of the upside as well of things like remote work, where it's like suddenly you're seeing people's kids run by or their spouses or partners or their pets. And it's like, you can't separate those things about what makes them human, right? And I was having a conversation with this uh, young woman in HR that's just kind of starting out 
and we were talking about this book, I think it's called Alive at Work. And it's about kind of the neuroscience of how do you help people uh, get to a place where they really love the work that they do. And literally the first um, intro quote that the individual puts in the book, and I'll link the the book and the author in the, in the bio notes, but it was like a piece of graffiti in London. And it said, I wonder what my soul is doing while I'm at work. Mm-hmm. And it just like hits you, right? Because it's like yes. how many of us are selling our souls to be in places and environments that actually don't align with who we really are as people because we've been taught that there's certain markers of success right around working for a big brand name that everybody knows that you may have really loved and connected with as a kid or that has a great fancy paycheck or a great title I just went through that experience last year where I walked away from a director title I took a pay cut to take a big pivot in my career so I could learn a totally new skill set. And let me tell you, the change has been so difficult because you have all of this comfort in almost being uncomfortable and not really enjoying things and hating it a little bit, but you're so used to it that you're like, <laughs> it is it's what it is. Sad, but it's true. It's yeah. true. And I will say that what I have learned and what I tell all of my coaching clients is corporate America is a tough environment, right? Yeah. Because especially in big tech, right? we're all producing, churning, burning, right? Usually Mm -hmm. super lean, right? You know, headcount is low and you're going to get that no matter where you go, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's becoming okay with some of the things that happen. And I know other people are going to disagree with me, but I'm not ready to leave corporate America. And so there are pieces where I'm like, you know, I wouldn't do it that way, but okay, that's fine. Right. Mm -hmm. Of course I draw the line at microaggressions. I draw the line of blatant racism. I mean, I draw the line, but there's things that happen on a day-to-day basis just because corporate America hasn't been run by people like me or you before that we just wouldn't do it this way. Exactly. And it's, almost like separating yourself a little bit to recognize that it's, it's not personal. And you're also in a position where you can have that influence one person, one conversation at a time, and it may not change the world, but it could change someone's experience and their perception of themselves. And that in itself is, is super important. And it kind of leads nicely into my next question around, you know, what advice you might have for other racialized women, women of color, they're really struggling with finding ways to show up as they are in their workplaces because there's a lot of risk, right? There's this fear of rejection, of discrimination, of being overlooked, of not being taken seriously. How do you advise someone who's kind of nervous about, you know, showing up and talking about things that might not have been appropriate in the workplace a couple of years ago or is a real passion for something that maybe people don't expect of them? or is trying to move past these microaggressions with their boss or ideas and stereotypes of what's what they're capable of because people have this idea of them maybe being the model minority or whatever that might look like. What advice would you have for, for women like that? Oh, it's such hard because I live it every day. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, What I will say is clean slate, right? So when you start a new job, you are able to teach people how to treat you. Right. So what I will say prior to joining Visa, I was raised by immigrants. So it was always work, work, work. They email you, you answer, you, you know, everything was very much um, 
it was, it was just the way I was raised. Like you never didn't respond to your manager. Right. Um, but I made a cognizant effort to join visa and be very clear that I wouldn't work week. I mean, this is not what you're asking, but it wouldn't work weekends and I wouldn't do this. And I have stuck to it, you know, and that even means that my boss texts me sometimes, you know, after 7 PM, especially if it's something silly, I'm momming, I'm not going to do it. And I think if we start that, you know, sometimes starting a new job is easy, right? What is really hard is if you've been at your job for three to five years and you wake up one morning, you're like, you know, I'm going to be the person I want to be today, because then the folks that you've been working with for three to five years are going to be like, what's going on? Right. (laughs) And so I find that that I wouldn't recommend anyone to do. That's a much harder, but if you're entering a new job, Decide what you hated about your old job and that person that showed up at that job so you can create a plan to not do those things, right? And mm-hmm. for me, overworking is been always what I thought. Like if you overworked, you'll get promoted, you'll get all more money. The reality is that is not true. Overworkers aren't getting more bonus, aren't getting more RSUs. In fact, we're probably seen as low impact workers because we're always so busy, right? And so I think it's that reframing. But the, the second thing is, if you're stuck at your job and you can't make moves, is try to find people that look like you, right? And build your own internal squad. And when you start feeling comfortable around a few people at your company that look like you, and you start growing that momentum, and you can, it can slowly show up across, you know, other people. Microaggressions with your managers. This is a great question. So years, for years, I've never said anything. I've always been like, eh, okay, well, that sucked. And then I would be so upset, you know. And now I've gotten to the point where I'm still upset and I still don't say anything in the moment because I'm a hothead and, and, and I wear my heart on my sleeve. So you're going to know immediately. I hate you. (laughs) Like that was wrong. (laughs) I sleep on it. I type up my angry, you know, response, sleep, don't send anything, sleep on it. And then the next day or, you know, the next available opportunity I have, I'll say, Hey, do you mind if I give you some feedback? You know, you said X, Y, Z in the meeting and it bugged me, but I know it probably bugged the other women of color on the team. And here's why. Um, And I've done that at my current role at least six times, very uncomfortable conversations. Um, There was a situation where someone kept cutting me off in front of a vendor on a very large 40 person meeting. And I, in the moment said, Hey, I'd appreciate if I could finish. And I knew that that was jarring a for a woman to say to a man. Mm -hmm. Um, And I could see it in the vibe And then I followed up by, you know, contacting him and his manager and saying, listen, women, and here's some data, here's some, here's some articles I found for y'all. Like, I'm not trying to be a brat, but women are consistently cut off and you asked the question. And then I guess I didn't answer it fast enough. So you decided to talk over me. And I just don't think that that was cool. And also don't think other, you should do that again. Right. I will say it was very well received because people don't do that often because there's an emotional labor to having to do that. Right. And so what I'm saying is take it on if you're in a mental capacity to do it. Right. Because you're doing the service for others. Right. He'll never do that to me again, but I bet you he won't do it to any other woman again either because he'll remember that moment we had. 
Yeah. Um, and that's how you change. And again, I think it's one by one, right? Now, yeah. if I was a millionaire and an activist and I'm currently reading this book, like we should all be millionaires. She's got me, Rachel Rogers got me fired up. She <laughs> says in effort, when you're a millionaire, you can help the cause, right? That's how you make yeah. change happen, right? It takes money to lobby. It takes money to create policy. Mm-hmm. And I want to be that person because then you would ask me this question and I'm like, working with lobbyists, we're going to change laws. Um, but in my role today as a single parent with a good financial resource, but not a millionaire. Um, It's about changing minds and hearts one at a time and being comfortable in your skin to call someone out in the moment or as close to it as possible. Yeah. And a hundred percent, once you have that, that sense of yourself, that confidence, and you kind of know that you've built this reputation, social capital, whatever it might be, you suddenly have this ability to access that so you can save somebody else from going through that same experience. And that's I would have beautiful. definitely not did this years ago, mm, you know, yeah. but I also think that every time I allow someone to speak over me or cut me off or say something like, Oh, working moms. No, no, we're not going to hire working moms. You know, something mm-hmm. like that. Right. Cause I don't think people mean harm when those things happen. It just happens. But the more that you take on, it's like a little piggy bank, right? You add one a day, one a week, and then next thing you know, you're fed up and you're like, I hate this place. And so I find that by standing up for myself and calling attention to what you said was kind of like icky, and I've gotten a lot more tactful with it, um, (laughs) has been helpful for my mental health because I'm a clean slater, water water under the bridge. I feel like, okay, I said something to you, you heard me. We don't need to talk about it again, but I'm, I can continue working here because I feel like I got it off my chest. Yeah, a hundred percent. It is interesting. It sort of touches on uh, something that on the podcast, I think one of the, the first couple of episodes, I remember I was in conversation with my therapist last year when we first started um, working together. And she said to me something along the lines of like, there's a difference between being nice and being kind where niceness is kind of this manipulation and it's this desire for someone to like you and this people pleasing and kindness. It's like, there's a way to thoughtfully give someone feedback or say no without having to make it a big thing and actually being able to walk away feeling like you didn't sacrifice some part of yourself. And it's such a huge lesson. I did an episode on it because it was such an aha moment for me. I'm very much always trying to fight against my, natural immigrant parent upbringing and like being grateful for whatever you get and just work hard and put your head down. And that was such a shift for me to have to start to think about the fact that I could have impact and my voice was actually quite worthy to be heard and to be advocating for those situations and those scenarios. And it's still something it's, it's hard every single time. It's like, you have to build up those courage muscles that you do. It is. Yeah. And I will say, I use this line quite a bit. You were hired for a reason, right? Mm -hmm. We know as recruiters, the interview process is competitive. So no chance that they picked us up off, you know, the streets and put us in these roles, right? We went through, they went through their due diligence. It was a lengthy process and we were selected. We were selected for a reason, right? And how we show up day one, day 90 in the very beginning between one and 90 will set the tone for the rest of your career at that organization, right? And I made a point to show up thoughtful. I, I made a point to tell them that I'm a sponge. I'm just listening. I want to. I don't want to disrupt. Um, and I think that those 
attributes allowed me to be comfortable because now it's been almost three years I've been here to when I say because I'm not a complainer I don't it's not something I do but when I say hey can I talk to you about something I don't think people see it in negative they do see it as a gift which has been great I also will say the culture at my current organization is far better than any of the corporate America jobs I've ever worked at I also will say there's a lot of work to be done but of course everywhere but I feel positive every day, even on the hardest days that people are all striving to really make a difference. And that is across all the spectrums. And for that reason is why I continue here, you know, staying where I'm at. And I think everyone deserves that, right? It's like so many of us settle for these experiences in these environments where we kind of put some of that stuff aside because we think it's not Um, important and we may not be deserving of having environments that really allow us to advocate and say those things and and I think what your point about how you kind of enter into the organization is so telling I I tell that to everybody that I ever talk to about even the negotiation process because it's like where you end up starting it's so hard to move up unless you make massive jumps right because the company is maybe going to give you a couple of percent a year if that. Um, And you have to really think about whether you're comfortable at the idea of starting at that salary and then staying put for a while or like, you never know what that's going to end up looking like. So where you start is so important. I think this is a great, great like point you make because I left Oracle um, again, because Nike had called, I was just so enamored with Nike. I think back like at how impressed I was, Um, but I took a pay cut and a massive salary cut, you know, thinking, okay, well, Nike is going to love me like Oracle's Oracle promoted me so fast. So did HP. I was like, I'll do the same. And then I get here and their culture isn't of internal mobility, right? People, their, their people getting to, I think I was brought on as a manager, getting to a director. I'd seen people for three, four years in the same role. Right. And you don't, I didn't ask the right questions because I was so enamored. And so I tell people this all the time. It's a freebie thing. I say, don't ever do that. No brand, no job is worth you taking a pay cut or a, or a a title cut. Right. And you may want to work there like I did, but I wish I would have had a mentor or someone to say to me, a better job will open up with them. Give it time. They'll come back to you. They love you. They're interested in you, but know your worth. Just I think the Minda book was so on point, right? Because it was all mm-hmm. about your worth, right? And it was eye-opening because it happened after I left Nike, but I didn't know my worth back then. And so that allowed me to just go like star-eyed emoji into this you know, job where I already sold myself short. So combine that with a very tough environment, a new environment, and a lot of microaggressions that were happening, I was I was already feeling low because I went from one, you know, echelon to another and there was no changing it. I put myself there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the environment can just suck everything out of you and you sometimes don't realize the impact that they can have until you're in it right and I used to work for an organization where I would tell people all the time like take your rose-colored glasses off for a moment while I tell you what the reality of what 
it would be because it is great. The company that I worked for previously for like six years almost was amazing, but there was also certain elements of the culture that weren't necessarily seen in their branding and the way they positioned themselves as an organization. And so it's so important for people to be really discerning and ask those really tough questions in the process because it should be a two-way dialogue, right? And a lot of the time we don't actually advocate for ourselves in that experience either. I think people like wearing the rose-colored glasses in corporate America because of the big salary, because Mm -hmm. of all the perks you get, right? I think the rose-colored glasses are better than the than the dark shades, right? Yeah. Um, not making excuses for them, but I think that that's why the Googles and the Amazons of the world thrive, right? Because you develop a level of complacency, or we call them rose-colored glasses because it sounds so much better, um, because then you have the people that are moving the culture, right? Yeah. And those people tend to leave because it's hard to see shifts. I'll tell you, when I worked at Nike, um, fantastic leader, Jarvis Sam said to me, when you're trying to shift culture, you know, by percentage of racial or gender, you know, when you're looking at the, the diversity numbers, going up 1% is so hard, right? Because of all the factors, right? One higher isn't 1% when you look at everything. And I never understood why our numbers weren't moving when we were working so hard to change the culture with events, with all of the things that, you know, the company was doing. And ever since he said that to me, I realized that that applies to all levels, all things at corporate America, right? To move the needle is really difficult. You, it requires this recipe of like success, like unicorn dust and glitter because it's so hard. Yeah. And it's so risky for companies to even start to dismantle any of the things that have made them successful because it's worked for them for so long. And what motivation did they have outside of sometimes just public pressure to do the right thing, right? So, And I hope yeah. that all of the black boxes we saw and all of mm-hmm. the things that people committed to do stick because I would love nothing more. You know, so many organizations said, you know, in three years, by 2025, we will be 50% black and Latinx. I would love nothing more than to see, be a part of that reality, to be the person that helped drive that shift, which is another reason why I stay at Visa, because every day I'm able to be like, hey, you know, what does your slate look like? What is this, right? If we can get America there, I mean, I'm very hopeful. I'm knocking on wood, right? <laughs> um, I will. I think the world will change a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, putting people... Uh, you know, of color, lat, you know, across the spectrum at leadership roles is, is a must. It's a must do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think if we can get more people like me and you there, people like corporate America will have to change because right now the complacency is, is, is what it is because the makeup is, is what it is too. Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, and I could, sit in this conversation with you for (laughs) hours more. I mean, it could go in so many different directions, but I'm also really mindful um, of your time. You're at the end of your day. And I will say I was so exhausted today and this conversation just completely um, lifted all of my spirits and my energy. And um, I really appreciate everything you brought. And I'd love to kind of ask if there, you know, the listeners have one thing that they take away from the conversation around authenticity and using that to really level up your career in a meaningful way, what do you think that that might be that you'd want to leave them with? 
So for me, because I've been online for so long, Mm -hmm. authenticity shows up on social, right? That's how people find me. But I don't think that's the answer. I think the answer, it doesn't have to manifest into that. And great if it does. Great if, if, if you open up an Instagram and that's who you are. Like, I totally celebrate that. But I think it starts in your heart. It starts in your day-to-day. It starts in making small changes. Um, you know, I'm over here being positive and giving you all these amazing ideas. But it wasn't like this all the time, right? I posted something on Instagram today about the disgusting goo that you know, caterpillars have to go through before they become butterflies. And I think if we can all be okay, that we're all have to go through those multiple times, it's not just one time, and we are open about it, slowly but surely the world will change. And and then you can show up as yourself. And it can manifest on LinkedIn, it can manifest everywhere else. But I ask that you just manifest it in your day to day. It starts by saying hello to your neighbors. It starts by, you know, over tipping your waiters, your service providers. It starts by being a good human being to the people in your network first, I think. A hundred percent. And just even shifting your mindset to see all of that as your way to contribute in your day-to-day even if it feels small it shifts your energy your vibe all of those things right and starts to attract more of that good um, manifestation of good people and great Mm -hmm. conversations more community I think that's all incredibly important and I love that that kind of where we we end off because that's exactly where we started was, you know, finding like-minded, you know, values in one another and being able to share some of those experiences and utilizing the power of social to do that. And whatever, like you said, whatever it looks like, as long as you anything, right. I think that that's also a very big thing when people come into a relationship or a friendship with me. And I don't even mean like a true relationship. I mean, just like a connection. Mm -hmm. If you're expecting something from me, that makes the relationship so much harder, right? But if you are just vibing and you're good people and it just works organically, to me, those are the best connections because I'll never let you go. And if you ask me anything, I'll do it for you, right? It's, It's those forced relationships that I... I, we do them. I know we do them. I've been yeah. so cautious to not do them anymore. But those are the relationships that kind of like they're energy vampires. And if you can also block out the energy vampires and find your squad of people that really are like you, um, and it takes time, um, that'll also help you be your real self because you feel comfortable being yourself when other people are with you on the same journey. and validate those experiences and can really see you for who you are and allow you to stand in your, your worth and your power. And I think that's. And celebrate each other too. I feel like we don't do that enough, right? We don't gas each other up enough. Mm -hmm. And I want to change that. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but being, you know, if you meet someone that's cool, put them out there. I mean, like for like, you've been doing this podcast. I didn't even know. And now it's like my mission to tell the world about it. Um, and I think that it starts with that one person, right? I mean, I posted today, follow you in three, four, like I did it done. I'm like, great. Like, you know, and three doesn't seem like a lot, but three converts to more. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it's a free way to just continue the positivity by gassing each other up and elevating the work we do for each other. Yeah, we're all in it together. 
and you're not in it alone as an individual navigating through these experiences. And that's exactly what I want this platform to really like what, what I want to shine through the most is that people know that they have a community and people that have navigated through those experiences. So Sally, I just can't thank you enough. I mean, that was just a, an absolutely amazing conversation. So many gems of wisdom as I expected. And um, we'll share all of your uh, social details and contact information, your website and such in the in the bio notes. And um, I just really appreciate it. I mean, I am so honored to have the opportunity to have the conversation with you and to listen to your expertise and to hear your vulnerability. Because I think that in itself is just super it, it takes strength and courage, I think, sometimes to be able to tap into that, especially with someone that is a practical virtual stranger um, and listening to an audience of people in a whole other country that you don't even really, um, all these strangers that will be listening to your story. And I, I just appreciate that. It's, it's, it's meant a lot. So thank you're you. incredible. And I'm a big fan. And if there's, you know, already, I'll repeat it, but if there's anything I can ever do to elevate you and the work you do, you're doing fantastic. I love your podcast. Um, and so I appreciate you just making space for me to tell these stories. Absolutely. Thank you for saying yes. And I will wish you and the audience a good rest of your evening. And thank you for tuning in and look forward to the next conversation.